Well, turn with me now in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Friends, we're going to look briefly this morning at Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 9 through 26. Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 26. Paul is building an argument here. He's at the very beginning of the argument. He's laying out the bad news so that he can in turn, beginning with chapter 4, get to the good news. But here in Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 26, he's coming to the climax of the bad news. Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 26. Hear now the word of the Lord. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. And there is none who understands, there is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside, they have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open grave, with their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. To demonstrate at the present time His righteousness, that He might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Amen. In verses 10 through 18, Paul gives us a scathing and painful assessment of humanity. There is no one righteous, no, not one. Doesn't matter how good you think you are, it doesn't matter. How wonderful you think your grandkids are. No, we are all depraved. We are all fallen in sin and misery. And yet, it is extraordinary that in Romans chapter 3, Paul immediately connects this so-called bad news with the best news. He says, you know, it's actually good news to be told that you are a dirty, rotten sinner. That's good news. Because there's a solution for dirty, rotten sinners. It's the cleansing salvation of Jesus Christ. 
If your problem is sin, then this morning I tell you rejoice. There is a Savior who saves from sin. Turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 53. Our psalm this morning, our psalm of the month, is Psalm 53. It is the first Lord's Day of the month, so we're going to look at Psalm 53. Our psalm of the month, it is the first Lord's Day of the year, so we're going to set something of a tone for the year by looking at this very appropriate theme, Psalm 53. This is actually a repeat of Psalm 14. Those of you who know your Psalters very well know that David was not above plagiarizing himself. And actually, this is almost, there's two slight changes that are of great significance, but otherwise, this is almost word for word Psalm 14. Done again. To say it in a minor way, whatever David's about to say is so important that the Holy Spirit thought you needed to hear it twice. So pay attention. Psalm 53. Hear now the word of the Lord. To the chief musician set to Mahalath, the contemplation of David. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and have done abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand who seek God. Every one of them has turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. Have the workers of iniquity no knowledge? Who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God? There they are in great fear, where no fear was. For God has scattered the bones of him who encamps against you. You have put them to shame, because God has despised them. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When God brings back the captivity of his people, let Jacob rejoice, and Israel be glad. Amen and amen. When we were in high school... We had a particularly enthusiastic band teacher. And as anyone who's heard me sing knows, I was not in his band. But I was in his audience. And there was one time he said, he introduced a piece of music in a most memorable way. It it captured my imagination and has stuck with me. He told us that the next piece was so inspiring and so invigorating That if the toes beside you weren't tapping, you should check for a pulse. In like manner, David hands us Psalm 53 and tells us in the subtitle, If you aren't dancing when I'm done, we may need to examine to see if you are dead. You see, we have a theme before us this morning, an idea, a truth. We have good news this morning that is so invigorating and so inspiring that when it's done, we should be dancing. It is the best news you will hear all year. And therefore, it is the right news to begin the year with. David, in the subtitle, says that it is a contemplation of his, a masquil. 
This means that it is something he's dwelt on, something he has studied and examined and meditated, and now he's bringing forth the fruit of his labor, something for the church to consider. He gives it into the hands of the chief musician so that the Levitical choir there in the tabernacle can sing it, so that the church of Jesus Christ can know it. We today are that choir. At the end of this sermon, we will sing this psalm as David has commanded it to be done. Royally authorized by King David, this psalm belongs in the hearts and mouths of the church of Jesus Christ. But in the middle, it says it's set to Mahalath. You guys know what that means, right? All those psalms you've come across that are set to Mahalath. This is an untranslated Hebrew word. It is most often handled by both translators and commentators as some reference to some ancient tune long forgotten. But like most of the subtitles of David, it actually has a translatable point. First, Mahalath is used in two other places in the Old Testament. In Genesis 28, we are told that Mahalath is the daughter of Ishmael, who Esau marries much to the aggravation of his parents. In 2 Chronicles 11, we are told that Mahalath is the granddaughter of King David. Perhaps this is a psalm that David and his granddaughter wrote together. And that like Jeduthun, Asaph, and the sons of Korah, Mahalath, his granddaughter, through the Holy Spirit, has entered this sacred company of scripture writers. And she is a psalmist with her grandpa. Perhaps King David one day was sitting... And he was watching his granddaughter Mahalath do what Mahalath does best. For this Hebrew word means pleasing, cheerful, inclined to dance. This is why daughters got that name in Hebrew culture. Perhaps one day King David, with the heart of a grandpa was watching his granddaughter Mahalath dance and twirl and rejoice in life and think to himself, you know, maybe I have forgotten something in my old age. And there is a source and fountain of joy to be recovered. You see, Psalm 53, whether co-authored by Mahalath or inspired by Mahalath, seems intended by David, designed by David, To produce a dance in the heart of God's people. This is a psalm that is meant to teach us to dance through life. To teach us to have a cheer in in our hearts. A joy in our spirit. Lest you think I'm straining the text too much. Please note the one and only command given in the text at the end of verse 6. Let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. The thrust and aim and goal of this psalm is to produce joy in the people of God. To produce cheer in our hearts. To make of us mahalaths. That we would leave this place knowing how to dance. To do this, my friends, we will have to examine first that evil abounds. Second, that Jesus saves. And it is only in the marriage of these two truths that while sin abounds, Jesus saves, that we then find the fountain of joy. 
and can ourselves rejoice. Come, dance with me. Notice in verse 1 that the dance begins by facing one's dance partner. Not a great surprise, right? How many of you are experienced dancers? Contrary to what is sometimes called dancing today, dancing begins by facing your partner and knowing who you are with. In verse 1, it says, The fool has said in his heart, No God. Notice there is, is in italics in the New King James. Because it's short and tight in the Hebrew. It simply says, no God. The fool has said this in his heart. He has internally resolved. He has made a determination and a decision. I will live without God. I will not face him. I will not know him. I will not have him. Notice that according to David, atheism is not an act of the intellect. It is an act of the will. We do not reason our way to the absence of God. We choose to ignore Him. We say in our hearts, no God, I will not have Him. David then notes the effect of this decision. They are corrupt. Having decided that there is no God in this world, the fool's thinking becomes corrupt. He doesn't begin with corrupt thinking that leads him to deduce there is no God. He begins with the decision, I will not have a God in my life. And from his atheism, he produces corrupt thinking. He produces corrupt feelings. His heart begins to long and to lust for that which is rotten. He begins to produce corrupt words. He speaks things that are untruthful and vile. And of course, he begins to produce corrupt deeds. He does abominable iniquity. This decision to live without God, this decision to ignore God, corrupts him. And his thinking fails. And his feelings fail. And he cannot produce beauty or truth. He produces instead abominable iniquity. But notice the awful refrain of our psalm at the end of verse 1. None does good. None. Wouldn't it be so nice if we could come to this psalm and I could preach verse 1 and I could say, you know those atheistic fools that fill our world who pretend there is no God? And we could just sit here and complain about this intellectual decision that the world has made. David doesn't allow us this. He points his prophetic finger at the people in the pews. And he says, this is what you do every day. You, dear people, are the atheist and fool of whom he speaks. I am the one condemned by this verse. We together are those included in this fallen humanity who looks at our marriages and says, no God, not here. Who looks at our job and says, no God, not here. Who looks at our decisions for our future, our decisions for our day, who treats our Sabbath in a way that says there is no God. Who treats our dreams and ambitions for the future as if there is no God. 
We enthrone ourselves as deity and say there is no God. We turn away from our dance partner. We pretend he's not there waiting for us. And we live our lives and we attempt to dance through this world alone. Pretending there is no God. And we make a great mortal mess of it, do we not? We ruin our marriages and we ruin our work and we ruin our children. We ruin all that we have done that we have not done face to face with God. Holding his hand and being held up by him. We are fools when we pretend that we can get through this life without God. We are fools. And David says, here is wisdom. Here is wisdom. Come and face your God. Come and behold your God. See him eye to eye and face to face. Hold his outstretched hand and begin to dance through life in his grip of grace. The second step to this dance. The first is come and face God. See him, believe him. God is face up to him. Having seen him and faced him, the first step to this dance is step back. It's one of those dances where you have to begin by stepping back. In verse 2, David says, God looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there is any who understands who seeks for God, every one of them has turned aside. They have together become corrupt. None who does good. No, not one. David imagines God sitting enthroned as a royal king, as David himself perhaps had experienced. He's on the dais, seated high above the dance floor of the world. And down below are all the various couples and they are engaging and dancing and moving about in their lives. And and God seated there on that glorious throne wreathed with all the heavenly worship and all the angels about him looks down upon the dance floor and says, is there anyone looking to dance with me, the high king of heaven? Is there anyone seeking me? Is there anyone in prayer? Is there anyone in the word? Is there anyone in worship? Is there anyone who would seek to live this life with God? And God finds in verse 3, there are none. No, not one. This is a painful dance, isn't it? It hurts to look in the mirror and to say, I am not fundamentally good. My friends, my neighbors, my co-workers, my children, my grandchildren, we are not fundamentally good. This is in fact the vision of humanity we long to escape and avoid and ignore. But it is the reality to which we must come when we are to face God. And know who He is and live in fellowship and intimacy with Him. We are those who have not sought Him but have turned aside. We have left off our dance partner. We have left off the one who meant to walk us through the days of our lives and down through the ending of those days. He intended humanity to walk with him in the cool of the day as he did with Adam in the beginning. 
It was a walk never to be ended. A fellowship to be perpetuated. But we, his dance partners as a humanity, have turned aside and embraced corruption instead. He looks down. Does anyone want to live their life with me? None. No, not one. My friends, this is wisdom to admit who we really are. This is wisdom to descend into the depths of our depravity and to embrace the reality of our sinfulness and our wickedness. He has not forsaken us. We have forsaken him. Do you ever feel like God is far away? Let me assure you, it is because he's right behind you and you have turned away from him. You have only to turn around. He has sworn, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He has said, I will be with you always to the ends of the age. He is there and he is ready to dance, ready to lead and ready to guide. And we are like sheep who go astray. We turn aside and become corrupt. Not one of us does good. This is the first step to acknowledge who we really are as a fallen humanity. To look God in the eye and to say, you are God and we are not. We have not sought you, forgive us. Face your God and see who you really are. Here then is the third step. It is also a step back. In verses 3 and 4, David says, Have the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God. There they are in great fear where no fear was. For God has scattered the bones of him who encamps against you. You have put them to shame because God has despised them. David says, Have the workers of iniquity no knowledge? Is there a true ignorance within them? Could they willfully seek their own destruction with sin? They eat up the people of God like bread. They prey upon others. But then there in verse 4, they do not pray to the living God. They do not call upon Him. They do not face Him. They pretend He's not here, that He doesn't look or see or hear or respond. In this fiction of atheism that they have invented for themselves, they act as if there is no judgment. They act as if sin will never come into account. They act as if they can merrily dance down the ways of their life, doing whatever they please to whomever they please. They don't care who they crush. They don't care who they step on. They don't care what damaged life they leave to this world. But then in verse 5, they are all of a sudden in great terror. They who were so full of themselves, so full of their wisdom and their wealth and their power, moving merrily through life as if it were a breeze, a song, a dance. All of a sudden they're terrified. Because God has scattered the bones of the church's enemy. You see, there is a bride for Christ in the world. And he is a jealous husband. He comes swiftly to defend her. And all those who would rise up against her to seek to destroy her are put to shame. God has despised them and will surely bring them into judgment. My friends, when we face up to God, we must face up to this awful reality. He is a God who hates. He is a God who judges justly. 
He is a God who scatters the bones of those who despise Him and refuse to dance with Him. Those who will live in the fiction of their atheism. Those who will live in the pride of their own hearts. Those who will enthrone themselves and not the Most High will find that He is there. And He is a fearful and awesome God. And it is a terrifying thing to fall into His hands. Indeed, my friends, this is the second step of this dance. That when we come to the floor and we face our partner and we see God for who He really is, we realize who we really are. Totally depraved. And we realize that we are also condemned. We are condemned sinners deserving of this destruction, deserving of all this retribution. The most stunning thing about the gospel of Jesus Christ is not that the God of heaven judges sinners. It's that He saves any of them. That He forgives any of us. He is a God who hates sin. And He is a God who despises the workers of iniquity. And He surely brings them into judgment and scatters their bones all over the earth. My friends, spend time in a cemetery. Let it sober you. There is death. It is always the last step in this dance. But it is not the end of the dance. We step back in the face of God and say, I am a sinner. We step back in the face of God and say, I am a condemned sinner. Doomed to die. And then we are ready for the magnificent turn. Have you ever watched really skillful dancers? Not the rotten ones on TV. I mean like the real ones. Have you ever watched them turn? It's like all four feet float as they just rotate through space. This is what happens in verse 6. We face God as He really is and we say, You are. God is. He is who He is. He is there. We acknowledge Him. We see Him. And then we know ourselves. Sinners doomed to a lost eternity. And then verse 6. He seizes us. And He spins us round and says, Oh, let the salvation of Israel come out of Zion. Do you not feel the force of His joy? Do you not feel the animating vigor of His enthusiasm and excitement? Let me paraphrase it for you using the original language. Oh, let the Jesus of Israel come out of heaven. This word is Yeshua. Let Jesus come out of heaven. The Jesus of Israel. This is David's prayer. That the God who is there in heaven will not there remain. But that he will come down. Verse 6 is a violent and passionate cry for the incarnation. A plea for the birth of Jesus Christ. 
which brings forth from David the dancing joy matched only by his granddaughter Mahalel. That the joy of the thought that Jesus will one day come into the world should produce in David such a divine joy that he would dance. How much more we, who sing not of a day dreamed of, but a day lived and experienced. David sang, verse 6, Oh, that Jesus would come out of heaven and into the earth. Oh, that Jesus should be born among us to save us. And we have seen David's prayer answered. We have seen it. The salvation of Israel has come. It has come out of heavenly Zion. And it has come down to the earthly Zion. He is Emmanuel and God with us. Ultimately, my friends, what is the answer to this world's atheism? Jesus. God is with us. How do you know there is a God? He's with us. He has come down and inhabited flesh and blood. He has come down and eaten and drank and slept and gotten sick and been sinned against. He has come down and He has died on the cross giving body and blood for us who believe. He has come out of Zion and He dwells with us. Surely you have reason to dance today. Surely there is an invigorating and inspiring melody to stir the feet and move the heart. Jesus has come out of Zion. He has come out of heaven and he is with us here in the church. Ultimately, the answer to the world's humanism is Jesus. How do I escape myself? I turn to Jesus. He has come to dwell with me. He is the new humanity that I long and need to be. I face my dance partner. And I say, God is. And I must live with him. But as soon as I see him and know him, I am undone. For I see and know myself. I cannot take the floor with him. I cannot take his outstretched hand. I am a sinner, and I am condemned. Oh, I need him to come to me, and come he has. And this is what David celebrates in the end. When God brings back the captivity of his people, let Jacob rejoice, Israel be glad. David here speaks of the captive people of his people. Which is most peculiar. Because in David's day, there is no captivity. Moses has led them up out of Egypt. The captivity is over. In like manner, they have not descended into the Babylonian captivity yet. They are between the two great captivities of Israel. So what does David mean when God brings back the captive ones of his people? Again, in the context of that first line of verse 6. He speaks neither of captivity in Egypt nor of captivity in Babylon. He speaks of the true captivity which he by faith perceived these events to represent. 
our captivity to sin and Satan and self. When God sets us free, when God removes the shackles and chains from our wrists and ankles, when God liberates us from this world and makes of us a new humanity, no longer defined by sin, no longer defined by condemnation, when God has sent Jesus into the world so that the Apostle Paul could declare there is now therefore no condemnation, David concludes, let the church dance. Let the church rejoice. When we come to the dance floor that is this metaphor of life, we see there waiting for us God. He is. And if we are to make anything of this world, and if we are to make anything of life, we must begin by facing this fact. God is. And when we have done that, we will know ourselves. I am not. I am a sinner, and I am condemned. And when we have descended into the depths of that depravity, we are prepared and rightly positioned to receive the Emmanuel, Jesus Christ, who has come out of Zion to dance with us. It is then that David says, you who have been set free, come dance. Rejoice and be glad. Let me submit to you, my friends, that if your toes, metaphorically speaking, aren't tapping, you should check for a pulse. For this is the life-giving truth of God. This is the resurrecting reality our hearts desperately need on the January of every year. And on the Sabbath day of every week. And on the first Sunday of every month. And as we slowly decay through our days and our weeks. And as we slowly descend into our graves. Till at last the music of this world is hushed. And you and I dance for our last day. We find the dance has just begun. We awake in glory. And finally see our dance partner face to face. My friends, your sin abounds. But Jesus saves. Sin abounds, but Jesus saves. Let's rejoice. Let's spend a year rejoicing. Because though your sin abounds, Jesus saves. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for this beautiful day you have made. We give you thanks for the extraordinary grace you have given us in Jesus Christ. That you have made us in your image and likeness. To dwell in your creation with you. Father, forgive us. That we have abandoned your friendship and fellowship so often. That we have turned aside to our abominable iniquities. That we have embraced the corruption of ourselves 
and the destruction of our world. But thank you, Father, for this beautiful psalm that trains us to take these precious steps that bring us to the sweet grace of Jesus Christ, that remind us He has not left us. He has come to us, and He has drawn us into the heavens. We give you thanks for this sweet salvation, this great Savior, and pray that we would be enthralled with Him today, and that our hearts would overflow with love and joy for Him today. And that you would bless now the partaking of this supper. That we might partake in great joy to the praise of your name. We ask this in your name. Amen.